Hello, Chris here with another episode of the Make It Podcast, and uh, I hope everyone has had a wonderful Independence Day weekend and had a wonderful fourth. And it is great to be independent if you're a filmmaker. And so in light of that, we thought we'd put together something a little bit different. It's a bit of a mashup episode uh, with some of our favorite guests from the past, giving their advice, tips, tactics, and teachings from uh, their conversations with us. And we put them all together. And uh, it actually turned out to be this uh, really cool and fun uh, episode. So this one features the likes of uh, Chris Green and Ryan Hartsock, Shannon Johnson, Drew Maynard, Dean Shortland, and Cicely Hoffman. Um, and I think you guys will get a lot out of it and enjoy it. And uh, until next week, please enjoy this latest installment of the Make It Podcast, which is advice, tactics, and teachings from the pros. Enjoy. You're listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps aspiring professionals in film get where they're going faster by dissecting the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives in the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. This piece of advice comes from producer Ryan Hartsock, and he talks a little bit about the power of timing and the importance of taking chances. Early on in your career, you got an incredible break as an intern for Ralph Winter, who uh, did the Fantastic Four and X-Men Origins, um, amongst many others. How How did you land that? Man, I so I, I talk to students a lot about filmmaking just because I wish when I was a student uh, back in high school, someone talked me, to me more about it. And a lot of times I tell them, you know, when I was ex- when, when people explained life and kind of your occupational pursuits as you grew into adulthood, they always described it often as like a linear path, like a straight road. And I literally put like a straight road up on a up on the screen and say it's like this. Like you just think, well, hey, I I go to high school, I go to college, I get my degree, I go get a job, that job takes care of me, and I retire. I do all those things. I check all those boxes. And I think now, um, you know, I'm almost 43, so I'm like that Gen X and below. That world, which was constructed maybe previously, is no longer really the world we live in every day. And I came out of college. I, I graduated college with a degree in English education. I taught in middle school uh, to eighth graders. And about, man, it was I was married. And probably a year into my marriage, my wife was like, listen, you talk about this filmmaking thing and you really like it. And you talk about one day you'll want to be this. And one day you want to be that. And she's like, listen, you either need to shit or get off the pot here. Like, let's. Let's figure this out because That's this amazing. is the time left. And so she was the one who was the catalyst for me to kind of put on the, the hat of decision-making because it's easy to talk about that. It's another thing to find something 
and go do it. And I was able to find a film school in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It's still there and it's doing amazing things. Uh, it's the Compass College of Cinematic Arts. And they were a young startup film school. And essentially they had people from both coasts come in and decide they wanted to start a Midwestern film school. Uh, in many ways, they wanted to create it outside of the systems that existed to help filmmakers who want to really uh, pursue filmmaking, but also know that some of people like me, I already had a job, I was teaching, but I was a teacher. So I had three months off during the summer and my wife and I left. I, I remember this distinctly. We we were uh, both teaching. The day after school ended, we moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan for three months. Mm -hmm. And so I did that for a summer. That was the summer that I realized I wanted to be a producer. Producer is one of those terms that you're like, what the hell does that even mean? Like, <laughs> I'm a producer. They're like, what? Like people know about writers and directors and actors and cinematographers. But producers are like that mystery thing. And I think most people think it's kind of like that thing that people do who are lazy or like, I want to put my name on a screen, so I'm going to be a producer. I I found out very quickly that the producer is the person that empowers people that are way more smart and talented than they are. And I was like, I like that. I want to be the dumbest person in the room, but I want to give the greatest opportunities to the people that may not have it here and say, go do what you're great at. And I it was like this epiphany. And through that film school, Ralph was on the board and – they said, hey, we're thinking about starting internships. Do you want to be the first intern uh, that we've had and go out to Vancouver? Wow, timing and is so everything. The next summer, That's amazing. It was, it, was, it was awesome. So they were doing pre-pro during that. So by the time the next summer rolled around, they were two months into filming. And so literally the same thing occurred the next summer. The day after school ended, I flew to Vancouver. And I actually – like. My wife was getting her master's, so she couldn't come along. So it was just me. I, I moved to Vancouver and was I, I, I showed up on set. I'd never been to a big film in my entire life. You know, like you've watched behind the scenes on DVDs, but you're showing up and you're like, holy shit, where am I? Right. And I remember meeting Ralph and Ralph was already busy. It's, you know, these boards all over his office. He's doing stuff. He's like, hey, go ahead. Just head down to the sound stages. They were at Vancouver Film Studios. There's like eight sound stages they occupied for the different sets that they had. I walked down. I had my little badge at that point, and I was kind of looking around, and this guy comes over, and he goes, hey, uh, who are you? I introduced myself. Hey, I'm Ralph's intern. He goes, have you, have you seen the stages yet? No, no, no. He goes, oh, let me take you on a, a tour. My name's Brian. And I said, well, my name's Ryan. And he goes, that's cool. I'm the director. And next <laughs> – <laughs> Ryan Singer then takes me on a three, literally a three hour tour of everything and walks me through. And I got to know Ralph, Brian Singer, um, Tom DeSanto, um, all these people that were there just gave me access to this world. It was like instantaneous access. And it was Ralph that gave me one of the most, probably the piece of advice that I have held most. Uh, attuned to that I've uh, that I've literally remember uh, at least once a week. So I'm leaving the experience I'm having with Ralph on X Men. I'm about to go back to the Midwest, right? I'm about to go back and teach eighth graders in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I turned to him and I'm leaving. I said, Ralph, what is what's one thing you want me to remember from all this experience before I head back? And he goes, 
produce where you are. And I was like, all right. And it took me a while to digest. But for me, what I've held to the meaning of that is you don't need to be in somewhere special to make movies. Mm-hmm. Creativity isn't bottled up in some location. There isn't some elixir that's in the water of L.A. or New York or London or wherever you, the, the big hubs of filmmaking are going on. You have to view your role as a creative that you, where you are, are useful and that you're no good where you're not. Like I can't go, wow, when I go to L.A., then I'll be a filmmaker. It's like, no, where you are, that's the important place. Take advantage of the opportunities, create opportunities where you are. And so literally I came back to Cincinnati, Ohio. I wrote curriculum for eighth graders to learn film on iMovie One, on Blueberry IMAX, and on Sony DV8 cameras. And I started teaching kids how to make teach film because it let me do what I was passionate about and hopefully unlock that same thing in kids. And to this day, I still do some of that in my spare time. I go, like I'm looking in my office right now. I teach uh, teach filmmaking couple couple weeks a year at Boys and Girls Club here nearby and just teach them on on iPads how to do the basics of story structure and how to create a little film for themselves and let them be creators. And it all came honestly from Ralph's advice of produce where you are. These tips and tricks and tactics come from our good friend and wonderful actor, Dean Shortland. Dean talks about how to pick a role, when to say no to a role, and how to juggle your family and your acting career. Yeah, because I think that's one of the things that's unique about you. And I think a lot of the people in um, the film community in uh, Nashville, excuse me, is uh, when they think about you, they, they think of you as a guy who juggles a lot of different things. And um, I think a lot of people wonder, how do you do it? So, so how, how do you manage to be a CTO of a company, which is no small job at all and, 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 and not something most people would qualify as a, as a side hustle, even if it's that way in our mind, yeah. uh, you've got um, a, a thriving real estate business. You have uh, major acting gigs uh, with dynasty in Nashville. I think you're starting a web series with our friend, Matt Cushing. Um, yeah. Been doing uh, some stuff. yeah. Yeah. Uh, coming up. And, and on top of that, you've got a family. So how do you, how do you do it all? And what is your advice to, to juggling those things? Well, first of all, you need to be a master negotiator. Um, but it's also working out, it's working out what to say no to. I mean, I, I used to be a person that would, when it came to acting work, I would just go, yeah, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but not everything is necessarily going to be the most beneficial spend of your time. Um, and as you get older, particularly when you become, a, you know, a parent and a, a spouse, um, even putting the job stuff aside, you, you don't want your family to get lost in the fray. That's, that is, I mean, everything we do is about quality of life, right? Mm-hmm. And, it's about, it's about love. It's about laughter. It's about peace. Whether you're an actor or whether you're a plumber or an electrician, 
or, or whatever, whatever it is you choose to do with your time. Ultimately, you're looking to find a way to maintain those things in your life. Love, laughter, peace, stability, security, safety. Um, so I, I analyze every, every opportunity that comes my way now and I go, is this how I want to spend my time and what is the return on it? And it doesn't always necessarily be, it's not always necessarily a monetary return. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the opportunity is one of artistic growth, uh, which I think is sometimes more valuable than money if you have the luxury to be able to choose that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that, I think I've answered your question that way. Um, don't, don't, don't say yes to everything. Say yes to the things that are going to take – that are going to – um uh, advance you on the path that you're setting out to follow. So right. goofing off and doing a little weekend filming thing with your friends, if you have things that you need to be spending time on that is not bad, do those things. You know, um, you, you've got to be a little bit strategic about your choices in order to juggle it all. And part of that is saying no to the right things as well, Right. I rarely say no to the right things. Well, say, well, I, I did that, that, that turn of phrase was really bad. Uh, let me put it more specifically, understanding which things to say no to. Sure. Absolutely. Um, so like, for example, uh, with in, uh, most of the acting work that I get these days is out of town. Um, and being out of town with a toddler, is uh, that puts a lot of strain on my spouse. Mm-hmm. My, my wife, Rita, is fantastic and incredibly supportive of what I do. But, I mean, if I'm just gone all the time, uh, she's going to be going, what, what are we getting out of this? Because we're not getting you. Um, so uh, we, we set a few ground rules. Um, if, I, if I am working on a project that's going to take me more than two days. Uh, well, all work needs to be paid, first of all, unless it's a really close friend and we're just goofing off together. Mm-hmm. And my wife agrees, yeah, go have fun. Because <laughs> uh, sometimes I just need to do that for sanity. Right. Uh, but more often than not, all work needs to be paid. If I'm gone for two or more days, it's not about the money. It's about what is the job and how good is the job. They're really important questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, oh, is this something that you are going to be able to put on your reel? Is this going to? Are you going to be able to use this to get more work? That 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 is the real qualifier. There, are you going to be able to use this work to get more work? And if you aren't, don't do it. And how do you define? roles that are going to fall into that category because that seems like a, an incredibly nuanced thing. What is it about a role when you get it that you say to yourself, okay, that one is going to springboard more work. I want to know who's involved from the crew and the cast perspective. So if it's an, if it's a top notch crew and you know, we have some really great crew in town, um, you know, uh, I could reel off, 20 names right now of people who are just fantastic. 
that if any of them are involved, I know they're taking it seriously and they have plans of it going somewhere. Mm-hmm. So that's from the first point of view, they're, they're looking for some type of distribution or they, they have a way of getting it into the right hands. Right. So the right eyeballs are going to be on it. And from a cast perspective, um, I need to know that the people involved in the project are as serious at the very least as serious about their work as I am. Yeah. Yeah. At the very I, least. I, I know that Nick and I, the name, first thing that, that we look at um, is can the team execute the vision? So the vision and the plan is, is, is excellent, can be excellent. But if we don't think the team can actually execute it, then that's a huge red flag. And that, I guess that would be our version of what you said about, do they take their work seriously? Can I use the same version? Because I think that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Can they, can they execute? That is essentially it. And how committed is everyone to the project? If they're just farting around and they don't care, (laughs) uh, why are we even here? Right. (laughs) What are we, what are we doing here? Right. Exactly. So, um, Time is way more valuable than the money I get paid as an actor. This bit of advice and teaching comes from the wonderful actor Chris Green, who just did a wonderful turn on Queen of the South. And he talks about how to stand out as an extra. So how can you get and build upon your career, even if you're starting as an extra? Really valuable stuff here. Enjoy. You started as an extra. Uh, in, in this movie, Chick, I think it's Chicks 101, but you, stu- but, but you stood out. Um, I've heard a lot of stories of, of people just saying, okay, if you're an extra, don't, don't be that guy or girl that does something the director doesn't want you to do. It's, it's kind of suicide, career suicide. But so many new creatives, which, which our, our podcast is focused on uh, to a degree, that's their, that's going to be their first role. They're going to be an extra. So what what is your advice to to stand out on a set as an extra without being obnoxious? Uh, you know I, I'm I'm a you know I teach my students uh, this 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 phrase of you know it's always better to ask for forgiveness than permission. Mm-hmm. I, I firmly believe that. Um, that being said, you know, do it intelligently. So if you are, let's say, like in my instance, it was a club scene and the lead actor comes into the club and he sees the, you know, this is the guy who like has all the ladies after him and chicks love him. And he sees that one girl that he, you know, he, he thinks he's going to get, but she's obviously hit to the game. So it's almost like a hitch situation where, you know, you got hitch who's like the master of getting girls and he comes across the one that kind of makes him feel like he, he doesn't know what to do. Uh, and so lead actor comes in and, you know, we're all dancing and stuff. And he's making his way through the crowd. And at the time I didn't realize that what I was doing or what I would teach an actor now, how to find the camera, right? Like they say, find the light, find the camera. Mm-hmm. I just instinctively was like, okay, well the camera's following him. So I'm going to follow this guy around. And you know, because that's just whatever, but I was doing it in a way that was natural. It wasn't, I'm going to follow this guy around and try to steal his light. It's like, okay, if I was in a club 
And I see this cat walk in and all the girls turn their head toward him. And they're going to go to his VIP section. I'm going to roll with this cat and say I'm rolling with him because that's what the ladies are going to be. Like, that was my thought process. And I guess the director, you know, because I was being authentic, you know, even though I wasn't acting, it was that was my mindset. That's what I'm going to do. The director saw that, you know, and he was like, hey, man, you know, you got on some flashy shoes and, you know, <laughs> this and that, you know, because I, I wouldn't dress like I'm going to a club. Like, you know, you know, I'm not just going to go in there and dress regular. Like, I'm going to try to get some attention. And especially, you know, a young guy in college is like, I'm, I'm living that club life. Like, I do this every weekend. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go and, and, and stand out, you know, as far as, you know, what I'm wearing and he liked it and he put me aside and he said, all right, you know, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to push post you up at the bar. When the guy comes through, you know, he's going to try to holler the girl. She's going to ditch him and you're going to, you know, look at him like, damn, crash and burn kind of deal. Don't say anything, but just, you know, and of course I, you know, I say something and director say, hey, man, I don't need you to say anything. Just kind of, but again, this is, you know, kind of the first set that I'm on of, of this caliber. And you know, it, it really is just about, you know, being honest, but also following direction. You know, the director specifically wanted me to do something. I took it, understood it, did it. And that's that. You know, it happened to make make it in. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, you become a superstar after that, of course. But for any actors who are just starting out or thinking about getting into the, the, the industry, well, you know, as far as film and TV, stage is obviously different. But as far as film and TV... You know, if you haven't started training yet or been looking at that and you've been pulled onto a set, the simplest thing is just to watch. That's your best friend is just to watch and observe. Watch how the camera's moving. Watch what's going on. Keep your mouth shut. Don't talk. You know, just watch. And if you watch and learn, you watch and observe, you actually learn a lot more. And then you can now maneuver and go, okay, cool. The camera is going to be over in this section. So if I kind of just, while I'm dancing, take two steps back. And just be over the lead actor's, you know, left shoulder, you'll see my profile. I might be blurry, but, you know, I can pause it and say, hey, that's me, mm-hmm. you know, and, and watching that. Because I, I think I noticed a lot of background. You know, we just had that on a production, the television show I just worked on. We had a club scene. And a lot of the actors were turning their backs to the camera and all that. And they were living in the moment of dancing, which I love. That was great. But then you had some actors who we're trying to look into the camera and they don't realize the cameraman is not stupid. You know, they, this is their job professionally to do that. So the moment they see you spike what they call spiking the camera, he's going to turn the camera away from you. And if you keep trying to move in, the second AD is going to come up or the first AD even is going to come up and they're going to go, Hey man, I want you to come over here by the bar. Stand. They're going to move you because they, they see this in a the monitor. They're not dumb. They see you doing that. So stop trying to steal the light, you know, just watch. And if you're observant, you can get slick enough to where I can position myself and open myself up and get caught just a little bit and you know then at that point it's kind of luck it has to be on your side too you know maybe the director likes what you're wearing or likes how you winked you know at the lead guy if he's interacting with you he or she is interacting with you you know just be natural like if if you're in a club setting and somebody approached you and said something to you in the club or whatever how would you normally react don't do anything extra for the camera just be yourself and that typically will honestly have you stand out more so than anybody else who's trying to act the part that's, I think that's sage advice. It's this idea of walking to the line without, without crossing it. Yeah. And then learning because no, um, no part is too small. You always have yeah. an opportunity to stand out. Um, never forget that like John Cho's like entire career started as a bit part where he wants to, you know, fuck Stifler's mom yep. in American Pie. 
He yep. was just a kid at a party who really, really stood out and really got laughs in just a couple of lines. Yeah, Jonah Hill, super bad. You know, this guy come in, he's trying to buy some pimp fish shoes. Uh, <laughs> or not super bad, but excuse me. Uh, you know, obviously he was known for that, but in a uh, 40-year-old virgin, he's trying to buy some pimp shoes, you know, and he's trying to, you know, get on and, hey, let me buy this. Or what about this eBay thing? You know, and then you go to Superbad and then fast forward to this great career that this man is having to where he's, mm-hmm. you know, even directed his own stuff. And that's the thing is, you know, there's a lot of people who got on by being, you know, in the background or doing little, you know, uh, um, as they say, bit parts. But as you said, I don't believe it's small parts. It's uh, I don't even think they're small actors. I think they're, you have, you know, puzzle pieces. And that's how I look at it. I'm like, every puzzle piece is important. You know, if you're putting a puzzle together of a dog sitting in the grass and a tree is in the background, you know, if you frame that and that little tree in the background, it may be a little dot. That puzzle piece may be a small dot. But if you leave that piece out, when somebody looks at the picture, they're not going to look at this beautiful picture of this dog and blah, blah, blah. They're going to go, you're missing a puzzle piece. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what it is. So if your background don't feel like you're insignificant, you know, just know, just know what part of the picture that you are you know mm-hmm. if you're just the tree don't try to be the tree and the river and the dog's ear just be the tree that's all you got to do is just just be that and and you will complete the bigger picture and even if you don't get the shine and accolades because here's the thing guys you know for those who are listening uh i honestly believe that the issue is a lot of people especially in, in acting schools are not taught you know, that not everybody's going to be the superstar. The lead is the lead for a reason. They carry the bulk of the weight. It's just like being the captain on the team. You know, when the Patriots go to the Super Bowl, by the way, I'm a New York guy. I'm a New York fan. I love New York. I hate the Patriots. I'm putting out there. I don't care if Tom Brady listens or any fans. I don't like you guys. That's just a New York Boston thing. But I'm using this as an example because obviously he's regarded as one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, which, you know, if you take away some of the cheating stuff, he is. But anyway, <laughs> um, I had to throw that jab in there, you know. Uh, but for you know, all seriousness, like Tom Brady, you know, he's you know, his story is great from where he evolved from. But you gotta look at, you know, when the Patriots win the Super Bowl for say or whatever, that he gets the, you know, even even if he didn't do he didn't score the most touchdowns, whatever, he's probably gonna be a lock for the MVP, or he's definitely gonna get the last interview after the coach. You know, Tom, how's it feel to be considered a great court? You know, and everybody else, they don't interview the offensive linemen and all these other people who protected this man so he could throw the passes. So, you know, it, it's it's one of those things to where you may not get the shine and the glory, but understand that you contribute. If it wasn't for those offensive linemen, Tom Brady wouldn't have a Super Bowl ring because he mm-hmm. needs people to protect him and throw the ball. If it wasn't for his receivers, it wasn't for the offensive coordinators on the on the sideline, yada, yada, yada. So it's the same thing with the film industry. You know, you may be in a film with Johnny Depp and he may be getting all the interviews and the praise, but understand that that pirate scene, pirate ship scene wouldn't have been the same if you had no background. You know, it wouldn't have been the same, you know, in this football stadium movie if, if Tom Hardy, you know, for Dark Knight Rises didn't have everybody to talk to. So understand that you're part of the, the, the bigger picture, but don't try to be more than what it is. You know, your time will come, you know, just keep going at it, keep going at it. And maybe you get the superstar status, maybe you don't, but every actor eventually gets to be a lead in some point or another the more you work. For all you writers out there, this next bit of advice comes from Shannon E. Johnson, who is the professional pen and uh, teaches writers all across the country how to perfect their craft. 
And she talks about perfecting your writing in this next clip. Enjoy. I also like the way you scale things, avoiding that one to five or one to 10 scale, which really is sort of devoid of meaning, even though we tend to fall back on it because of its simplicity. Right. But but instead having a skill of, okay, I'm going to pass here. Okay, this is in development. This is good to go. I'm curious, um, how many errors are are acceptable in the first 10 pages in formatting or in grammar um, if the story's good? Is there, a, is there a point to which you stop reading any screenplay if you reach a number of those type of errors? All right. So the thing that people, that writers have to understand is that this thing is totally subjective. So I'm going to give the answer for me, and I'm not going to say that it's the answer for anyone else. My undergraduate degrees are in English and journalism. So if I'm reading your screenplay and you have grammatical and spelling errors all over the place, I'm going to be done. Now, with that being said, (laughs) you have you have hired me to give you notes. So I have to finish reading your screenplay. The difference is I used to be the person in development who you would be sending the screenplay to so that you could then get a meeting so that we could talk about taking on your your story. So when I was in that position in those first, you know, I used to try to give people 15 to 30 pages. Most people will only give you, you know, about 15, but I would try to go to 30. Mm-hmm. If I'm reading, if I'm the person who gets to say yay or nay and you have for me, if you if you if you have it's hard to give it a number, but I'm just going to go with 10 because I can understand that if if your eyes are the only eyes who have been looking at this thing for months or years, you might not realize you didn't have a period. You might not realize you called this character John when his name is actually Josh. Like you mm-hmm. might have you just can't see it anymore because you've been looking at it so long. Those kind of things I can give a pass. But if there's no punctuation whatsoever, there are never any you know capital letters where they're supposed to be. Things are misspelled. It's like, first of all, spell check exists. Secondly, proofreaders exist. And if you know that when this makes it to my desk, I have the power of saying yay or nay, why wouldn't you want to put every effort into making sure that thing is polished before it gets there? I always tell writers, know your strengths and weaknesses. And if you know that grammar is not your thing, or even if, you know, English isn't your first language, so grammar is not your thing. Or English is your first language, but grammar has never been your thing. Reach out to someone whose thing it is. Because for me, if it comes to my desk, I'm done with it. Now, as a script consultant, again, it's my job to read it, so I'm going to read the whole thing. And my very first note is going to be nitpicky note. You have to read this thing with a fine-tooth comb (laughs) before you send it out. Now, they're not sending it to me because they're trying to get it purchased in that moment. So again, it's totally okay. But before you send this to your competition or, you know, to whatever studio you're going to send it to, you've got to get some proofreading and formatting done. Period, point blank. It's always my very first note. What would you say is the most common mistake um, would be screenwriters, amateur screenwriters, aspiring screenwriters make? Um, and, And maybe what are the what are the most egregious? So maybe the most common and then what are the most egregious? I think it's the, it's the same answer for me for both. Um, and it's the simple one show. Don't tell Mm. screenwriting is all about action. And if you haven't taken the time to read screenplays, 
Like just read screenplays, right? If you haven't taken the time to do that, you don't really get it. Because as a non-writing movie viewer, you think that you just sat through two and a half hours of people talking to each other, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. So when you make that movie in your head, you see dialogue first. So you start writing your screenplay and now you've got a screenplay filled with dialogue. Mm -hmm. But that's not what screenplays are about. Screenplays are about action. Screenplays are about reaction. Screenplays are about subtext. No one says, except for maybe me, everything that they're thinking. <laughs> no. <laughs> Most people are passive aggressive. You know what I mean? Most people are afraid to speak exactly what they uh, what they what they mean and feel because of whatever repercussions they've made up in their mind are going to come from it. So in a screenplay, you have to show us real people and real people just don't speak that way. They just don't. And because it's about the action, you have to be able to show me that same thing instead of telling it to me. So I think people find that hard to do. So what I always tell writers to do is go back and write your dialogue heavy scenes as nothing but action. Just action, nothing else. See if you can tell me that story. And then go back and fill in dialogue where only necessary. And I think once they learn that skill, it gets them to a better place. The other thing is, and this may you know, happen with people who've written creative writing a little bit more, is that they'll tell me in the action what's about to happen yeah. versus just letting it happen so that I can see it within the story. So I tell people all the time, you are writing for the reader. Not for the screen, not for the director, not for the award speech that you that you think you're going to make in five years. <laughs> you're writing for the reader. And as the reader, I just want to read a story as it's happening, real time, present tense. So don't tell me and then she's going to do this. And then three pages later, she does that. Now you took away the surprise. Don't tell me. Right. Just show it. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? That's um, that's. um that last piece is, is huge. Um, just writing in the present, mm-hmm. um, writing, writing in that active, active voice is. Yeah. Is An pr- actionable thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actionable things versus just, you know, like, it's great to know how people are feeling. That's something I will ask my writers all the time. How, how do they feel about this? What's their reaction to it, but then give me something actionable that shows me how they're feeling. Yeah, exactly. And, and just being able to do that consistently over uh, the span of a screenplay while maintaining the same tone is a little bit more difficult than I think people bargain uh, that it is. So Mm -hmm. um, luckily they, they have you uh, the professional pen. So, Curious about a couple of things. These would be some rapid fire type of questions, but um, what is the best screenwriting book in your opinion? You know, I am not a person of screenwriting books, if I can Mm. be honest. No, go for Um, it. Yeah. Because I just, everything is subjective and everyone's saying the same thing. So if you find a book that's speaking your language to make it make sense for you, then that's the book for you. (laughs) <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think in 2019 
the, any of the books are brown, groundbreaking for me. Like the first book I read was Story by Robert McKee, right? So that was, I don't right. know how many That's decades, huge. decades yeah. ago. But it was great for me in that moment, you know, and then I know other people enjoy Save the Cat, but, you know, they're all saying the same stuff. They're just saying it from their point of view. So if you can find a book that's speaking your language that helps to turn those wheels for you, then go for that book. Yeah, my my go-to is the Screenwriter's Bible by David uh, Trottier, I believe is how you say his last name. Or maybe it's Trotter, and I'm just adding some extra letters in there to sound cool. Um, but it's uh, it's it's great, and it's not really um, it's 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 almost like an academic version of a screenwriting book. Mm-hmm. This next bit of advice comes from one of the more popular questions we ask, which is uh, if you had a month to teach you know someone or anyone that's new your particular strength or your craft. And in this case with Drew, it'd be directing and filmmaking, you know, what would you teach them um, if you only had one month and and they had to be competent at the end, at the end of that month. And uh, this was his answer to that along with a couple of other tips and tricks. So uh, this is uh, Drew Maynard on smart filmmaking. You've probably seen 500 to a thousand shorts. So I would be not doing my job if I didn't ask you, you know, when you look at these films, what are the biggest sort of creative mistakes you see being made on screen? And what are some of the business mistakes you see in terms of how uh, some of these shorts are funded and uh, or how these filmmakers are, are trying to apply their short out in the real world? Mm, gotcha. Um, it's a, it's such a, I used to have this philosophy that I don't think I thought out as much as I should and that it might help to not take things so seriously um, when making these. But we all want to show that we are serious filmmakers and we want to show what we're doing. But sometimes there's an overwhelming self-seriousness. Again, we're trying to give the are the thesis of our life, you know, make a large Kubrick like statement when it's, I don't know if this is the format, they're short films, like show, pluck out, pluck out an idea or two that you want to just clearly convey and, and, and build off of that. Like it's, I think we get it. We just, as filmmakers, we get excited and want to, show off our fancy footwork and it's like, ah, I think you overshot it. So keeping it kind of scaled back, back, but not like lazy. I don't know. It's a weird thing. Um, but really, I guess it's like the easy one for pitfalls is length, length of the short film. I'm very guilty of this. I've made two 20 minute shorts and it's like, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot to sit through right? <laughs> for, you know, for an audience. So if you're, if you're going for that, man, you got to nail it at every turn. And like the longer the short film, the harder it is to nail it at every turn. And so like, unlike what Caleb and I did and, uh, jumped in head first into a 20 minute, work your way up toward that. I think. Right. That's my, <laughs> And I, um, I would say that might that it might also be business too. I know you're about to allude to that, but I was thinking if yeah. you can't get your short into a festival, 
um, uh, because it's too long, you know, it, that, yeah. that might hurt you in a business way too, but, but yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, that's what that's, you know, and I, as far as business side of things, I, I think festival, if you want to get into festivals, yes, brevity is important. Um, the Defy Film Festival, um, it's run by um, Billy Sinise and Dicey, while well, I mentioned earlier, uh, I kind of, I'll help them screen sometimes. And length is a very large determining factor. Um, I've, someone just broke it down very simply for me is I've got a block of shorts. It's two hours. I can fit four five minute short films in where I can fit your 20 minute short film. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, well that's, that's the math of it. And you want to show as much of a variety. So like, there's really, there's just not much room for a 20 minute short. And I don't know. I think that should be, but I don't know now, like things are changing in a way that I think you can do like TV pilot stuff in film festivals and episodic is, is a thing that, um, mm-hmm. you know, I've kind of, it's like, I see, I see you episodic stuff. That looks fun. But like, that's another, it's another, uh, monster tackle um gosh the business side i think also and i'm definitely not any sort of authority to speak on this but i um a lot of guys that i work with they work you know for not at all the appropriate amount of money that they should be paid when um but there's a lot of back scratching and that's the main thing is um commit to working on stuff whenever you can and see if you can, you know, scratch my back. I'll scratch yours. We'll, we'll work. It's, it is the love of the game sort of thing. Sometimes mm-hmm. I know we're here to make money, but it doesn't happen, uh, right off the bat, unless you're just awesome, which then it definitely happens. <laughs> but I don't know. Yeah. I, I mentioned it in, in a previous episode. I think there's a time to work for free and there's a time to know your worth. Yeah, and, oh, and and I think um, the the time to work for free is when you're see because directors and and uh, producers and and even where me and Nick have produced and done executive producing, we want to work with the same people over and over because there's trust. Yeah. So so when you're still yeah. when you're trying to find a team that you can work with over and over again, that's a good time to work for free. But then once you're on that team then you need to get paid for your work. Uh, once you start producing things that can actually produce income and, and honestly, you know, to me, and this goes to all forms of art and for all creatives, uh, if you be honest, uh, with your work, because you have to ask the question as painful as it may be, um, would you pay for this? Yeah. Would you pay for what you created? And if the answer is no, then, then, it's going to be hard for you to monetize that art and then pay the people that worked on it. So you have to also know, okay, it's time for me to get paid when I'm making art that other people will pay for and support my art. Um, in any, in any medium. Um, and sometimes it's hard to have that objectivity when it's your baby, when it's the thing you're making. Um, but Gosh, you do, you, you have to such try a to hard it. question. Yeah. Like when, that's when that do you know that. it's good enough? Yeah. That is a brutal mirror. <laughs> like, it is. The, the, the best <laughs> reflection, though, is your own family. And I, I mentioned this to Spencer mm. Um, mm. Glover before as well, which is um, no one tells you when you're ugly. <laughs> that's that's the that's the you have to when you're when you're 
beautiful, people tell you you're beautiful all the time. <laughs> when you're handsome, people tell you you're handsome all the time. But when you're ugly, no one mentions it. No one like they avoid your looks like it's the plague. Like they don't want they don't even want that conversation to come up, right? So same same with your art. If your friends and family want to consume your art, that's a really good sign you're making good art. Um, when they show up to all your showcases or your screenings, that's a really good sign you're making good art. When your family won't won't even give you like ten dollars on a GoFundMe, that's a problem. That means you're that means you're not making good art. <laughs> you know, or, or so, you're making art about your family and they're not too keen on it. They're not too keen on it exactly. So, um, yeah, very good stuff there. Um, I'm curious if if you had one month to teach someone how to be a director, what would be the first three things you would teach them? If you had if you had uh, one month, one month to teach them. Oh man. Um, first three things. Okay. No matter when you think you've, uh, let's see, I think I have a problem with, uh, self-motivation and I think you just find those gears. And when you're, when you're, you're like, well, I've, I've pushed it pretty hard today. I think this is a productive day. It's like, just push it a little further, man. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're sitting down to write, if you're sitting down to edit, like, sure, you might feel productive. But what if you just went a little beyond that and kind of developing that discipline? And man, I'm uh, not, I, I'm the biggest offender of that. But uh, I think that's something that I, I harp on myself. And would I guess if someone's asking me to teach them something, I would say, I would push them in a way just to stick with it. Um, and I think, uh, I, I don't know if you are aware of this guy. I love him. It's a weird thing, but, uh, film crit Hulk, he is a internet film critic, uh, who kind of works in these somewhat anonymous ways. I think his identity is out there. He's a film critic, but he has really great insights of information usually on big budget films, art films and all kinds of stuff. And, and I try to follow him. And one of the things he said especially when it comes to comedy is, um, you know, if you feel like you might need to zig, try a zag. Uh, and it's such a simple concept, but it's almost like a, a mantra. Like I know you get in your head and you start trucking through, you know, well, this is how things would logically go step back, zoom out and try a zag. Uh, as far as the story goes, mm-hmm. um, or, or even in building shots, because there is a course an appropriate way to shoot something, but just keeping it within the zigging and zagging, try, try the opposite in a, I don't know, in that kind of way. I know that comes naturally to a lot of people, but sometimes I don't think it quite comes naturally to me. So I have to remind myself, I should get like memento tattoos of that. Just so <laughs> I'm like, what is this? Oh yeah. I'm supposed to zag. Um, yeah, that's something that I would convey. And I guess another thing is, if we're as much as we work, you got to put in hours working. We also have to consume. And, uh, it's a, that is such a strange balance now. Um, like even 10 years ago, kind of learning stuff, you could, you can go to blockbuster and get a DVD and that'd be your night. But now we can just like sit down and watch, I hate the L word, but literally watch anything. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I think we can either 
just be overwhelmed by our media diet or we can fine tune and continue to click in. It's kind of like one of those big giant synthesizers now where you can fiddle with knobs as much as possible and watch Filmstruck vegetables uh, or Netflix candy. Like I'll binge Daredevil like crazy, but then it's like, okay, that was great. I learned some stuff. Now, where else can I learn things? And that would be, you know, what, what strange director spotlight is on film struck, but then keeping it kind of light and lively. Like I just watched my all time favorite music video. Uh, I hadn't seen it. Uh, and I was like, gosh, it's so good. It's so foundational to certain things that I still try to do today. What, what is your all time favorite music video? <laughs> it's uh Snoop Dogg, uh, sexual seduction. Uh, <laughs> it has, I think, uh, I don't know, 84 million views. And like, I think 4 million of those are probably me. Uh, uh. Just watching that video. It's just perfect. I'm not even like a crazy Snoop Dogg fan. I don't know if I have like his albums or something, but just that video is a, uh, is a nice kind of center for me. And like, it's a good dude, they video. went weird with this. It's so good. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so like, I don't know, being cautious about media diet, uh, getting as much in. And I would include short films in that for, for sure. Mm-hmm. Watch some bad short films. Sorry. They're, they're out there. Um, yes. watch good short films. Of course you want to learn and see what, you know, what's going on. I think like South by does a Vimeo roundup. Like you can find the 2017 comedy shorts uh, on, on like a playlist, just, you know, spend a binge slash burning through those. Or then you can probably find some, some rough ones out there. You don't want to, you know, it feels like, well, oh, I only have so much time. I don't want to um, spend it on something poorly made, but man, you can learn so much from that. I love a, a good, bad movie. Uh, cause you, you can not from too high of a horse, but you can kind of see missteps and go, yeah. wow, that's a really want to avoid. Yeah, the, the actor, uh, Matt Williams talks about watching movies as study and, and that there's always a challenge that you have to pose to yourself, which is, am I, am I, binge watching to learn or, or am I binge watching to be a couch potato? And, uh, you, you kind of have to know that line and, and, uh, make sure that you're, like you said, spicing it up. So you know, mm-hmm. ha- having diversity so that you actually, it actually is a learning exercise and not an exercise in just burning time. Last but certainly not least is Cicely Hoffman. And, uh, she talks about overcoming challenges and living a life based on hopefulness. And I thought, what an appropriate way to end this episode than with this clip from Cicely, who is a wardrobe designer and fashionista and friend. And um, again, uh, teaching how to live with hopefulness and overcoming those challenges. Um, I hope you enjoyed this mashup podcast and I hope you enjoy this clip. And you'll hear from us next week. Talk then. Yeah, the pressure's really on. And there's a set of rules that's objective for everybody. Mm-hmm. And um, it amazes me the range of output you see uh, in a 48. 
so when I go to those festivals and watch those films, you see um, films that really need a lot of help. And then you see, sure. master- and you see masterpieces and you're like, everybody had the same opportunity. This is pretty sure. amazing. And, and it is a way to quickly delineate between, you know, whether or not you should be doing this even at all. Uh, I know that I've had directors tell me that that's what 48 is really good for as well. Um, I totally agree with that. Yeah. One of one of my pieces I am most proud of is a 48 called Lime and Davenport because you do the entire thing in 48 hours. So you basically only have 24 of those hours to film. And we decided it makes sense within the story, but we decided that in every scene, every character would change their outfit. That film is about seven minutes long, and there are about 80 costume changes. Holy cow. I didn't know that I could do that. And finding out that I could do that, to this day, if I get pushed up against a wall on another project, I think, girl, one time you put all those outfits on, some, on all these people in 24 hours. You can do this. At the, in retrospect, obviously, it was a, a, you know, a blessing and, and you figured a lot out about yourself. But at the time when you were told that, did you just ask for a rewrite? <laughs> no, I knew it was the best thing for the story. Okay. And I, I knew that at the, end of the, at the end of the day, filmmaking is about a collaborative telling of a story. That's the most important thing. And I knew that that, was, that made the story better. I knew mm-hmm. that it was critical to the story. It's about it's basically about a party where there's this button that this woman pushes and every time she pushes the button the party starts over. And I knew that it was critical to show the audience in a way that that was happening as well as tell the audience that that was happening and that it would propel the story forward, which you're at the mercy of the story. And yes. I knew it was the best way to do that and it was the right thing to do. And I I am a good crisis actor. I am one of those people where if something bad happens, and not that that was a bad thing, it it was a good thing, but if something bad happens, I react very quickly, I react very well, and then I go home and cry for three days. (laughs) So when the challenge was presented to me of can we do it this way, and I knew it was the right thing to do, I'm just the kind of person who goes, all right, let's do it. Hit the Mm. ground running, let's let's go. And we had... We had to get very creative. I mean, there's one there's one shot of a woman, and she's. it was the last shot that we did. She's actually not wearing clothes. I am behind her, squatting down, and I've wrapped a blanket around her chest, and I changed mm-hmm. her jewelry so it looks like a strapless gown, but it's actually me holding a blanket <laughs> because we literally ran out of clothes. Wow. <laughs> but I, we got it done. Got yeah. it done. Yeah, and it, it makes me think of um, this quote you have. You've been quoted as saying, you're cursed and blessed with eternal hope. Yes. Um, where did that come from? Why do you say cursed? I say cursed because I think sometimes hoping can be cruel. If, uh, if people have a false hope, that can be a very crushing thing when it goes away. Because you can, you know, you can hope for, you can hope for everything. You can, if you have a relative who is sick, you can hope for them to get better. And that's not always going to happen. And I think sometimes that hope can be cruel and can exacerbate grief. But I also think that if you do not hope for the best, the best often will not happen. Right. Yes. 
yes, yes, yes. I'm all about the power of positivity and the only way that you, the only thing in, a, in any given situation, the only thing that you can really control is how you react to it. Yes. And I choose hopefulness as much as possible. Sometimes I don't, but I try as much as possible to choose hopefulness. And most of the time it works out for the better. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find out more information on this week's creative, including links to their projects and social media feeds, please visit our website at www.bonsai.film forward slash make it. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative. If you do that, the show will pop right up. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and on Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step toward your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on Show Me How to schedule a free discovery meeting and needs assessment. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.